All right. Well, good morning. It is May 31st. It's hard to believe, but here we are, May 31st, and we're gathering uh, here in person. We have a, a good-looking group out here that I'm, I'm thankful to be able to be talking to. Some of you haven't been here yet, and so I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, and I know some of you are still watching at home, and so we're thankful that we can, we can do this. Um, I should, everything should be good. Uh, I want to start um, just kind of, actually, I considered having a whole sermon um, kind of aimed at directing kind of the current situation that we're in. There's a lot going on, um, but, but I decided not to do that this week. Um, but I do want to, at the, at the beginning, just, just make a few uh, statements or points. Um, and so the first thing is simply this. We live in a fallen world. Um, and so that, what that means is that sin affects everything. Uh, every aspect of our existence is touched by and affected by sin. Okay, and so because that's the reality, this means that suffering, suffering is experienced by every human. Okay, this is Christian, this is non-Christian. Every person that lives in a fallen world experiences suffering to some extent. This is just the reality of life after the fall. And so sometimes, sometimes suffering is experienced uniquely by Christians. And so if you think about in places like North Korea or Afghanistan, or Somalia, in, in these places, Christians are being persecuted specifically because they are Christian, okay? And so our brothers and sisters in those places and, and others, they are suffering. And so as Christians, we must endeavor to be aware of that suffering, we must be, be, be aware of what's going on. We must fight to keep those Christians on our minds and in our prayers. I mean, the fact that we have brothers and sisters suffering for their faith um, we must remember that, which can be difficult specifically because we're not really affected by persecution in Somalia. Right? That, that doesn't affect us. Um, it's, it's way over there. It's far removed from, from America. Um, and another thing, another reason, it doesn't really affect or change my life. And so when Christians are, are persecuted for their faith in, in a distant land, that, that doesn't really affect me. And so I have to be conscious of that suffering and I can care for my persecuted brothers and sisters by entering into their suffering and bearing their burdens by remembering them and pleading before the Lord for them and with them. Okay, and so, so that's, that's Christian suffering, but sometimes human suffering isn't unique to Christians, but rather is unique to a larger group or segment of people. For instance, the Jews in Nazi Germany. Right? They were targeted, a, a group, an ethnic group was targeted because of their ethnicity or, or the, the Tutsis in Rwanda in the 90s. And there's many more, but, but these are occasions where suffering was experienced because of one's ethnic identity. And in these cases, again, it's easy for us not to really be affected. We are easily removed. But in these cases, just like in the case of our persecuted brothers and sisters, as Christians, we ought to care about suffering, even when it's experienced by those who aren't Christian. We care because we recognize that life in a fallen world, sin affects everything, and we are enemies of sin. We hate sin, and we oppose sin in all of its forms, specifically when it takes the form of injustice. And this is part of what it means to love our neighbors. And so at the outset, this is not a political thing, this is a Christian thing. We are called to love our neighbors. And so Christians, as Christians, historically and presently, we ought to oppose injustice and identify with those who suffer. I mean, that's the example that the Lord himself set, and that's the example that we're to follow. And so as Christians, we oppose social justice issues. We, ad we address and oppose social is issues that deal with injustice. And so Christians have always and ought to always oppose things like abortion, right? That is an injustice, or child abuse, or sexual assault, these are things that Christians always, as long as we are living in cultures where, where sin is showing its effects, we ought to oppose this. And this goes also for racism. It's an injustice, and Christians, we speak out against it. These are Christian issues. They're justice issues. And I'm not talking about social justice on, on this horizontal realm. I'm talking about divine justice. God's justice, justice that belongs to each and every image bearer. And so the Christian response is to recognize the role of sin in human suffering, to recognize the reality of life in a fallen world. And we have to do that wherever it, wherever, wherever it reveals itself. It becomes difficult, just like when I said, when we're not really affected personally. It becomes difficult to feel the significance of suffering when I 
am removed from it. Which doesn't, we should remember, doesn't change the reality of suffering, but it changes my perception of it and my ability to respond to it. And so, when it comes specifically to the issue of race and racism, when a specific race or ethnicity experiences suffering, Christians ought not to be afraid of recognizing the reality of that suffering. But we, we ought not be, to be afraid of saying this is a real thing that's going on, especially in this country where racism and racial tension has been part of our history from the beginning. It's part of who we are as a nation, good, bad, or ugly. Right? That is part of our experience. And so as Christians, when we see things like what happened to George Floyd this past week, when we see black men and black women in response expressing anger and frustration and pain in their experience of suffering, and I would say in that case, especially unjust suffering, we ought, we ought not to be afraid of acknowledging that we as a country, we have a race problem. We, we shouldn't be afraid of that. This is not to comment on the violence and rioting and the looting in response. I mean, just this morning, I was watching coverage of, of what's going on in major cities. That is, that is awful. It's terrible. It's not helping the cause. It's not moving things forward. It's heartbreaking to see what's happening in places like Nashville and, and Los Angeles and Minneapolis. The riots and the violence, it's just, it's anarchy and it's scary to see. But we, we have to be able to isolate these things. The ungodly sinful violence in response to the death of George Floyd and others doesn't negate or invalidate the legitimate suffering and injustice that he experienced. We have to isolate it. That's a totally different issue. We can't say, well, look at how they're responding. So, so all of this doesn't matter or, or it's all non-important or not essential. And we ought to be careful of, of stereotyping or painting with broad brushes and saying, well, this is what every protester is like. That's, that's not true. There are peaceful protests that are going on all over the country. And so when we see black men and women expressing anger and frustration and pain in their experience of suffering, we ought not to be afraid of recognizing it, but also of listening. We ought not be afraid of that. We ought to welcome that, especially when our experience is different from theirs. We are not affected in the same way. I'm not affected in the same way as an African-American pastor, even here in Hampton. It's easy for us to turn a blind eye, but as Christians, when we're aware of injustice and suffering, we must care, we must love our neighbor. And so we ought to want to welcome and hear the voices of those who have suffered. And when we hear these voices expressing anger and frustration and pain, instead of dismissing or ignoring or, or invalidating their voices, we ought to simply listen. And we ought to listen specifically if we don't know what it's like to suffer in the same way. Again, this isn't a political issue. This is a moral issue, a Christian issue. And I want, just as a, a pastor, simply to encourage you and me as Christians in a fallen world, when, when, we, when we experience or we witness or we encounter injustice, I want us to be quick to hear, quick to listen, and slow to speak. I'm not saying we shouldn't speak, we should speak, but we ought to be slow to speak. And when we do speak, my hope, my prayer is that our speech would be anchored in our identity as Christians. Our speech ought to be anchored in our identity as Christians and a proclamation of the gospel hope, the only true and final hope for any sin problem. So we ought to speak with gospel clarity, but I want our identity to be anchored in our Christian faith rather than anchored in our identity in anything else. And so that's, again, I, I just, it's been a hard week. I didn't know what to say, but I, I have to say something. And so my prayer for us, for the church, is, is from Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So that's my prayer, let love be genuine. Let us abhor what is evil. Let us identify what is evil. Let us isolate this is evil. Let us abhor it. Let's hold fast to what is good. And so what we're gonna do this morning, it's gonna be a little different at the outset. So typically right now, what, I'll, what I would do is I'd read a passage of, of scripture and then I would pray for us. Um, but this morning, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read a passage of scripture. I'm gonna read from Psalm four. And then after I read Psalm four, instead of me praying, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to have all of you individually just pray silently. You can pray out loud if you want. You don't have to, but, but I'm gonna lead us through just specific points that, that I want us as, as Christians, as the church, to pray through. So I'm gonna read Psalm 4, 
And then I'm gonna, gonna say, first, let's pray for this. And there's gonna be a moment of silence. And then you as an individual, are you gonna pray for whatever you want to pray as, as um, I lead you through kind of prompts, okay? Um, so let me read um, Psalm 4. So Psalm 4, beginning in verse one, <clears throat> the psalmist writes, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so let's, let's pray together. First, let, let's take a, a moment to praise God for his grace. Give thanks for what he's done for you in Christ and recognize that because of Christ, you know God as Father. So praise God for his grace. Second, in light of, of Psalm 4, ask God to give you a righteous anger for things in this world that are unjust. Ask him to give us his heart for justice and righteousness. Next, ask God to grant peace. Ask God to grant peace to those who are suffering, those in, in pain, those who are tired, those who are discouraged, specifically our African-American brothers and sisters. Ask God to grant peace to those who are serving our nation, specifically those in law enforcement who are trying to maintain peace. And then ask God to grant peace for our country. Pray for peace to come quickly in, in the wake of what's going on. So ask God for peace. And finally, ask God to grant unity to the church, to our local church and to the larger body of Christ. Pray that we would be unified by the gospel and that the church in this country and the church in the world would, be, would accurately represent the one new man that Christ died to create. So pray for unity for the church. And Father, we pray all these things in the name of Christ who we beckon, Lord, come quickly. We're, we're anxious and longing for your return. And so we, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly for us, your people. Amen. Well, we, we have great hope. I, I don't want this to be a discouraging start. We have great hope because of Christ, uh, because he did not regard our helpless estate as, as unworth unworthy of pursuing, but, but he pursued us. Um, and so we, we have great hope. The gospel is powerful. Um, and so we, we as, as his ambassadors here, we have, we have great hope and great reason to speak into these things. Well, this morning we are continuing the, the series on the Holy Spirit. If, you're, if you follow the liturgical calendar, this is the week of the year on the calendar where the church uh, celebrates Pentecost Sunday. And so if you look in relationship to Easter and the crucifixion and the resurrection, this is the, the date that's set apart as Pentecost Sunday, where in Acts 2, Peter preaches the gospel and the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and, and causes 3,000 to be born again. And so this, this is the Sunday where we remember that. So it is, it is certainly appropriate for us to focus this morning, continue our focus on the ministry and work of the Spirit. And so last week, actually this is the sixth week, but instead of giving you a, a rundown of the past six weeks, I'll just remind you, last week we looked at the work of the Spirit in God's children, the spirit of adoption that, that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, and, and assures us that we are his children. And, and this week what we're gonna do is we're going to look 
at the ministry of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit that, that transforms God's people. So the work of the Spirit in transforming God's people. And as we, as we go through this sermon, I'm, I'm gonna take you on a bit of a journey and it's the journey that I just took uh, this past week. And so even when we started the, the, uh, a series on the work of the Holy Spirit long month, month or two ago, uh, I always knew that, that the focus on the Spirit as the transforming presence in God's people, I knew I was gonna do it, or the sanctifying work of the Spirit, I knew that was going to be a topic that we we're gonna cover. And so this week, was, the plan was to cover that, to, 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 to preach a macro level, big picture sermon on the role of the Spirit in transforming God's people. So that was my big picture uh, to plant or, or to paint this big picture of kind of the history of humanity, showing that we're created in God's image, and showing how redemption and the process of sanctification is actually a remaking of us in that image, and kind of the the big picture and and the growth into Christ likeness as as the call of every Christian and the work of the Spirit in doing that. And then to show, you know, in the New Testament, there are a handful of passages that talk about the holiness, the necessity of holiness for the believer, and to show that, and then to show how the Spirit is the only hope for our uh, growth, our sanctification. Okay, so that was my plan. Um, and I may end up preaching that same sermon next week. But here's what happened. As I was studying for that sermon, I, that one text that I, I knew we were gonna look at was in 2 Corinthians 3, specifically in verse 18, which I'll, I'll read the passage in a second. But I knew we gotta cover that passage. And as I looked at that verse and, and the, the larger passage that, that 2 Corinthians three eighteen is in, I thought this verse and this, this passage this can't just be a subpoint in a big sermon. This must be the whole sermon. And so the main point that Paul makes in that passage is that the Spirit is the one who transforms us. But the context and the case that he builds to make that case is, it's, it's fascinating, it's, it's intriguing. Um, and I found myself reading the passage, studying the passage, thinking this, this is amazing uh, and this can't just be a subpoint. And so this, this is why this morning we're gonna look at 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18 is the passage. And so it makes the point that the Spirit is the agent of the transformation of the life of God's people, but it does so by locating the ministry of the Spirit that we're gonna focus on in the context of the new covenant, which he contrasts with the, with the ministry of Moses and the law, which several weeks ago we highlighted the, the Spirit is the mark of the new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit marks and, and distinguishes the new covenant. So Paul does the same thing that we did several weeks ago. So I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to highlight that while at the same time showing the, the miraculous work of the Spirit in transforming God's people. So 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, I'm gonna begin reading in verse seven and I'm gonna read through verse 18. Okay, so you can follow along if you have your Bible or you can listen if you don't. So 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse seven. Paul writes, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that what is will, what is permanent have glory. Verse 12, since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me pray for us before we look at these verses. Father, I am so thankful for the new covenant ministry of your spirit that I'm not what I once was, but I'm not where I'm going to finally be. And so I'm thankful for your spirit. I pray that as we look at this passage that you would encourage us, 
that you would lead us and guide us and transform us into the image of Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. So we've got four points that we're gonna work through. Uh, And so first point that we're gonna look at um, it's not actually from the verses, but it's from Exodus 32 through 34. So we're gonna look at the background event that, that Paul is referring to to make sure that we're all on the same page. And then we're gonna look at, secondly, when we move into these actual verses, we're gonna look at the contrast he makes there in verses seven through 11. He makes the contrast between old and new. Then we're gonna look, thirdly, at the purpose of the veil. Okay, that, that's, that's kind of the point of the passage in verse 12 and specifically 13, the purpose of the veil. So we're gonna look at that. And then fourthly, we're gonna look at the ministry of the Spirit. So so what does the Spirit do? What does he do in this new covenant ministry? Which will then, it won't be an abrupt ending, I hope, but it'll be an ending that that propels us into Lord willing next week meeting and talking about the continued work of the Spirit in transforming God's people. So first point, the background. So Exodus 32 through 34. You don't have to turn there, but you can write down um, this, this passage, this, this section of scripture, because what, what happens in Exodus 32, 33, and 34 is, is what would, would, would be considered, I think, one of the low points in the history of Israel. So they've been delivered. They, they, they've gone through the, the Red Sea, the, the Exodus. We, we've seen the plague. We've seen God judge the Egyptians, and so they're redeemed, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. They're at the mountain, and he goes up to receive the law. So the Lord has delivered them. They are his people. He is their Lord, and, and Moses goes up to Mount Mount Sinai. And while Moses is up there, the Israelites, along with Aaron, make a golden calf and begin to worship it. This is the God who delivered us from the Egyptians. So they begin worshiping this idol that they create. And so Moses, coming down the mountain, sees this idolatry, right? His anger burns hot. He's angry when he sees what the Israelites are doing. And he shatters these two tablets of stone. So he's gotten two tablets up on Mount Sinai and, and the Lord's finger had actually written the law onto these tablets. Moses shatters them. His anger runs over and he throws them down, shatters them, which we ought to note clearly conveys to us that from the very beginning, the covenant was violated, right? He doesn't even get to the bottom of the mountain before the violation has occurred. They, they, have, they have disobeyed, they have rebelled. The Israelites couldn't cut it. Right? He receives the law, he comes down, can't even get down to them before the, the covenant is violated. And so in fact, in, in Exodus 32, and this is verse nine and 10, the Lord says to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, leave me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them in order, Moses, that I may make a great nation out of you. So the Lord says, I'm done with them, I'm gonna consume them and start over with you. Right? This is the Lord's anger, boiling over. And specifically, it's the stiff-necked people, the hard-heartedness of these people. They've just been delivered and they begin worshiping a false god saying, you delivered us. Now, thankfully, Moses has been appointed as the interceder for the Israelites. And so Moses intercedes for the Israelites on behalf of the Israelites and the Lord punishes them, right? So he, he raises up the, the Levites to punish those in that moment, but he, he doesn't forsake them completely. In fact, as we get to the beginning of chapter 33 in verses one through six, we read, the Lord says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring, I will give. So the Lord says, Moses, you go. I'm gonna send an angel before you. He says, Moses, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not gonna go among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. And so Moses reports this to the people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people for if, a, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so Lord, again, his, his presence is not gonna go among them. I'm not going, I'll send, a, I'll send an angel, but I'm not going because I'm gonna consume this stiff-necked people. Which raises what one commentator describes as the pressing theological problem of the passage. How can God's glory continue to dwell in the midst of Israel without destroying her? Now, that's the pro- How can God's glory dwell in the midst of Israel without destroying her? They're stiff-necked, they're rebellious. His, his, his presence, his glory must consume them. They're sinful, covenant violators, they're serving of curses, not blessings. That's who they are. 
And so the initial solution we read in chapter 33 is for Moses to go meet with the Lord in a tent that's set way up outside the camp. Do you remember that? Moses would go outside the camp and that's where the presence of, he, he wouldn't dwell in the midst of the camp. He couldn't be there, so he would set up a tent outside. And when Moses would go, Joshua would stand at the door and all the people would see Moses going and they, they'd worship at their tents as he's going out, as he's their representative, their mediator. So that was the, the initial solution. But then as Moses knows that the people are heading into Canaan, he approaches the Lord, this is in chapter 33, in this famous interaction, he says, hey, if your presence isn't going with us, if you're not going with us, don't, don't bring us up from here. If your presence isn't going with us, we're not going. Moses knew that the presence of the Lord is what separated them from everyone else. They were going to, to inherit the promised land. It was gonna be a, a removal of all the people that were inheriting their land. And the Lord with them was what differentiated them. And Moses says, if you're not going with us, we're no different. So don't send us. And so Moses, knowing that the presence of the Lord will separate them, says, I'm not going without your presence, but I think this is one reason why Moses says, let your glory pass before me. Remember where he says that? I think Moses is proposing himself as the mediator of God's presence in the midst of his people. Hey, let your glory pass before me and then I will go with the people and, and I will be the mediator of your presence. And Lord graciously grants this request and lets him see at least part of his glory. Which then leads to Exodus 34 and the re-giving of the law. So, so here's law uh, Sinai part two. And so Moses receives the law a second time, then comes down the mountain and relays the commands to Israel. Though, verse nine of Exodus 34 makes clear that even though these commandments are given again, the Israelites are still stiff-necked people. They still have the problem. And so as we get to the end of Exodus 34, notice what happens. And here's where we get to what Paul is referring to. Verse 29 of Exodus, 20, 20 of Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel, they saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now we're gonna work this out as we, as we work through 2 Corinthians 3, but notice in the text itself, it doesn't say why Aaron and the Israelites were afraid to come near. It's just they saw his shining face and they were afraid. Now some say it's because they're in awe of the glory of the Lord. So, so they're afraid, oh, that's the glory of the Lord. I can't go near that. But as we'll see, and as I think the context of 2 Corinthians 3 will make clear, they are afraid of the presence of the Lord that, that's, that's shown in Moses' face because they're stiff-necked, rebellious people and the presence of the Lord in their midst would destroy them, would consume them. Which means, right, I'm showing my hand early, the veil is to protect the people, not to conceal something from the people, but to protect them. Moses, this is one commentator, Moses' Moses's veiled mediation of God's glory permits his presence to remain in Israel's midst without destroying her. In this regard, Moses' veiling himself is an act of mercy. So God's presence in the midst of a sinful people must always be guarded or veiled. And this is what we saw. So the tent of meaning in Exodus 3, 33, the, the veil of Moses, and then think about the holy of holies. No one can enter there. That is a protected, that's a sacred place in the tabernacle and then also in the temple. Under the old covenant, the unmediated presence of the Lord in the midst of his people would destroy them. There are always rules, regulations, guards to protect the people from the holiness of their God. Which then, okay, that sets the stage. Now let's jump into the, our, our second point, which is in verses seven through 11 of 2 Corinthians 3 and the contrast that he makes. Okay, so all that is background of the old covenant. And so notice the contrast of so verse seven. Paul, now we're in 2 Corinthians, we're in the new covenant, but Paul is referring to the old covenant. He says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So here's the contrast. 
The ministry of death, the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness. And so these two ministries are contrasted by what Paul uses is, is this lesser than to greater than argument. So he recognizes the ministry of Moses was accompanied by glory. There was real, genuine glory that Moses' face actually shone. There was real glory. Though it was a ministry of death, though it was a ministry of condemnation, it was still a ministry of glory. God's glory was still mediated through the old covenant. His presence was still with them. And Paul says, if that's the case in the old covenant, in that covenant, how much more will the glory be that accompanies the new covenant, the, the ministry of the spirit? So not death, but life, the ministry of righteousness. This new covenant glory is gonna far surpass that of the old covenant. And that's Paul's argument. Look there at verse 10. He writes, indeed, in this case, what once had glory, that's old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. New covenant, verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The old covenant, although it had an expiration date, was still a covenant whereby God's glory was mediated in the midst of his people. And Paul's point is that this new covenant, which is not time restrained, which is eternal, will be and is accompanied by more glory or a better, greater mediation of God's presence in the midst of his people. And so that's the contrast, which then leads us to our next point, verses 12 and 13, the purpose of the veil. So look there at verse 12. Paul, continuing in his, his train of thought, says, verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now this is Paul justifying his boldness in addressing the church at Corinth in this letter, and, and actually in, in the first letter also. And so this, this boldness is part of the larger context of 2 Corinthians. And basically, Paul is saying, as a minister of the new covenant, I can, I can speak boldly to you because I know, Paul says, I know as a minister of the new covenant that the presence of the Lord is being mediated through the Spirit, and I, as a minister of the New Covenant, Paul says, I don't have to veil myself like Moses. It's different. The, the glory manifestation or the mediation of the glory, it's different. Which is why I notice verse 13. So he says, 12, we, we have such hope, we are very bold. Verse 13, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So verse 13, that's a puzzling verse. So, so Paul says, we do this, we're bold, we're not like Moses, and he explains, Moses would put a veil over his face so that, why would Moses put the veil? So that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome, this is the ESV, gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. If you have the NIV, it says, we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, or the NASB, we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So what's clear is that Paul is different than Moses because of the nature of the new covenant, but verse 13, that's confusing. And so, so as we try and piece this together, as we kind of uh, create this amagulation, amagulation, joining together of all these translations, Moses put a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze or see or look intently at what? The outcome or the end or the purpose of what was being brought to an end or what was passing away or what was fading. And so as I mentioned, some will say that Moses failed his face that the Israelites would, wouldn't see the glory or the glow fading from his face. Now I've heard that, I've probably even taught that before. And if that's what Paul means, he means that he doesn't have to hide himself like Moses because the glory accompanying the new covenant is more permanent than the glory that accompanied the old covenant. So, so if that's what Paul means, then in the context, he's saying, hey, I'm not like Moses. I don't have to hide my face because there's a greater glory. It's a permanent glory. Now, I agree with that conclusion. I agree with the glory that the glory accompanying the new is more permanent than glory accompanying the old, but I don't think that's what Paul means in verse 13. I agree with what the conclusion is, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here in this context. So the first question to ask of verse 13, Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So first question, I think the easiest answer to find is what was being brought to an end? What does he mean there? What was being brought to an end? In the ESV, the thing that's being brought to an end is clearly the old covenant. That's because up in verse 11, the thing being brought to an end, the same, same language is used. And in fact, in every English translation I looked at, besides the NIV, we'll set that aside over here, but every other English translation I looked at, verse 11 and 13 use the same term to refer to the old covenant. 
So, so what was referenced to the old covenant in verse 11 was also the same language used in verse 13 to that which was being brought to an end. So that's what tells me that verse 13, the thing being brought to an end is the old covenant. Okay, are you following? So, so we're using verse 11 to help us interpret verse 13. Paul is saying Moses would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze upon the outcome of what was being brought to an end, aka the old covenant. Okay, that, that helps us, but that doesn't answer our next question. What was the outcome or the end or the purpose of the old covenant that was coming to an end? What, what, what didn't Moses want them to see? And so, so the Greek word there actually, it, it means literally the, the, the purpose or the, the result or the outcome or the fate. That's the word there. So, so he doesn't want them to, to, to gaze at the result or the outcome or the fate of this old covenant, which tells us that Moses veiled his face to keep the Israelites from seeing the result or the outcome of the old covenant ministry of glory, which means that Moses wasn't hiding something from the Israelites. He wasn't concealing the glory from them. Rather, he was protecting them from something. He was protecting them from the glory of the Lord, which would, would have been the result of the old covenant glory in their midst. So the veil protects them from being consumed. Scott Haifman, another commentator, argues, Moses veiled himself to protect the people of Israel. The Israelites were justifiably afraid given their sin and subsequent punishment. The glory of God was mediated on Moses' face and the repeated veiling rendered inoperative or stopped or cut off the effects of the glory on his face. Wearing the veil was Moses' way of protecting the stiff-necked people from the death-dealing judgment of the glory of God. Right, this is what God decreed against sinners in the old covenant. It prevented them from gazing dangerously upon the glory mediated on Moses' face. So the veil protects them. The stiff-necked, law-breaking, idolatrous nature of the Israelites under the old covenant demanded condemnation. It demanded vengeance. And it was only by God's gracious provision of Moses, the mediator, that the presence could accompany the people. Therefore, Moses, after meeting with God as the mediator between God and man, had to veil his face or else the glory of the Lord would consume them. So I think that's the purpose of the veil. Now, uh, a helpful illustration from a movie you, you may have seen, it's not a kid's movie, by the way. Okay, so, so parents, be warned, it's not a kid's movie, but in the, one of the Indiana Jones movies, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's this scene near the very end where, where the, the, the bad guys, the, the clear evil party, the, these Nazis have, have found the Ark of the Covenant Right, this is the lost ark in the movie and they find it and they've captured Indiana and his, his uh, love interest or his friend or the heroine, uh, Marion is her name. And so they're, they're all tied up and they're, they're there in this scene where the, the Germans, they're, they're all gathered and then the, 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 the leaders are up there at the ark. And, and as the ark is being opened, Indiana tells Marion, close your eyes. Whatever you do, don't look. Cover your eye. don't look at it. And as all good movies go, Indiana Jones ends with the bad guys being defeated, but in this specific case, they are destroyed by this, this kind of ghostly, almost skeletal-like presence that, that comes out of the ark. And in fact, in a, in a quite graphic way, I, I watched it again yesterday, um, it shows the, the faces of those who are there looking at it, it's, it's a melting of the face when they see the ark. Now, while the scene, I'm not arguing for, for biblical faithfulness or accuracy. I mean, it's, it's, it's disturbing. Even in the year that it was written, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, anyways, the point that that scene makes is similar, I think, to the point that Paul is making here. So Moses, like an Indiana Jones, when he stands before the Israelites with his face veiled, is in a sense telling them, don't look. You can't look. I'm going to put a veil because you can't see this or you will be destroyed. Because gazing upon the glory of the Lord whose, whose presence is, is being mediated because I've just met with him, it would consume you. You're not worthy. And so I think that's why Moses veils his face. He's not hiding anything from them. He was protecting them because that's the nature of things under the old covenant, which leads to our, our, our last section, our final section, where Paul makes his point regarding the nature of the new covenant and the transforming work specifically of the Holy Spirit. So look at verses 14 through 18 the ministry or the work of the Spirit. And so Paul, to make his point and to highlight the work of the Spirit, remember that's the whole reason we're looking at this passage, we want to see the work of the Spirit. Paul 
continues, and he doesn't only want us to know about the efforts that Moses took to protect the Israelites, he also wants us to know that the primary issue or the primary obstacle concerning the Israelites' failure to listen and respond to Moses to, to keep the covenant was their hardened state. So look at it at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Now just to be clear, this isn't simply a mental or intellectual thing that Paul's talking about. This is a hardness of mind and heart. It's a, it's a total hardening that characterized the Israelites. And so the issue wasn't with the people or the covenant, or the issue wasn't with the covenant or the veil, the issue was with the people. They were stiff-necked and rebellious. They could not keep the covenant stipulations. So you remember Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. They, they couldn't cut it. The fault was not with the old covenant or with Moses, but with the people who were sinful. They, the people could not see the Lord's glory without being destroyed. And so as Paul clarifies the current situation in Corinth as he's writing, he draws a connection between the Israelites then and the Israelites at the time of Paul's writing. So notice how he continues in verse 14. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, I think he's talking about the Jews, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because, here's why, only through Christ is it taken away. And so Paul, this is how he highlights the difference between the old and the new covenant. The issue in the new is still the same. That same veil remains unlifted, he said. In other words, while Moses is not physically present, presenting the, the Jews the old covenant, Moses' physical presence isn't there, they're still prevented from seeing the glory of the Lord. The veil is still there. The old covenant does not solve the issue of the hardness of heart or the stiffness of neck. This is why Paul makes the comment about the Jews of his day, the veil still remained because they didn't turn to Christ. They held fast to the old, to Moses. They continued to look to the law. And as long as they did that, they were refusing to turn to Christ, which Paul makes clear is the only solution to the problem. The old covenant can't fix the human problem. It is only the new covenant that's been inaugurated and instituted by Christ and his spirit. I mean, that, that's verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the only way to solve the problem, which is actually as, as, we, as, we, rec as we look at it, it, it's not just an Israelite problem, it's a human problem. And the only way to solve the human problem of rebellion and hard-heartedness is for the hard hearts and stiff necks to, be, to, to turn to the Lord. So, so the only way to deal with it is to turn to the Lord, which, is, which has been shown and revealed, he has been made himself known through the gospel and the new covenant. And the veil is only removed through Christ. And Christ is only revealed through the new covenant. Right? There's a reason that the new came. The old was temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. The new has come and it is permanent. It's not temporary. And so the ministry of Moses was only ever veiled and only temporary and could only lead to death and condemnation. It's the, the ministry of the law. It's good and it's right, but, but it can never, it was never intended to give life as Paul would say in Galatians. There's never true freedom under Moses. But... For Paul, a minister of the new covenant, things are different. As Paul is ministering in the new covenant, Christ has instituted this covenant that is far greater than the old. And under the new covenant, Paul says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed and hard-hearted, stiff-necked people turn to the Lord through hearing the gospel. And so when you turn to the Lord who's revealed through the gospel, the veil is removed and, and you see the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is made manifest and you see it. Which is exactly why Paul can boldly address the Corinthians. He's not like Moses. And in verse 17, he turns to the role of the spirit. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit. Yahweh is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. And so Paul is bold compared with Moses because the Spirit has radically changed the people's disposition before God. This is the new covenant. The Spirit regenerates as we looked at. People are changed by the Spirit. Consequently, the glory of God no longer needs to be veiled from those to whom he is sent since its goal is life, not death. New covenant believers can encounter the glory of God and live because the condemnation of the old covenant has now been permanently annulled for those who are in Christ, by Christ, through his death, burial, resurrection. This is the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. He radically changes us. He comes, he indwells us. He gives us new life. He unites us to Christ. And he gives us 
freedom. Do you notice that? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Maybe you've heard that in a song. But, but what's the context here? The freedom in this context isn't freedom from sin and death and slavery, though, though that's, that's other places in the New Testament. And it's true. The spirit does. The gospel does give us freedom from all those things. But in this context, the freedom is freedom from the necessity of a veil. Where the spirit is, there's freedom. There's no need for a veil because the manifest presence of the Lord is in the believer. You don't need a veil. You have the presence within you. Freedom from having to be protected from the glory of God. And every Christian with Paul, look at verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's it. That's the journey that we've been on this morning. It's been to get us here to verse 18. Because there in verse 18, that is the work of the Spirit. Paul comes to his conclusion by making the point every new covenant believer is in the place of Moses. You notice that? We, with unveiled faces, we are like Moses now. The privileged place of Moses in the old, the the singular place, only one person in the old covenant, only Moses, or only the high priest once a year, or only this, or only... Now, every new covenant believer is in that place, beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. And not only that, not only can we converse with the Lord with unveiled face, but also we behold the glory of the Lord and we all with unveiled faces are transformed. Transformed like Moses. Remember, Moses would come down from the presence of the Lord and he would shine, his face would glow, he would be altered. The presence of the Lord would alter him. Seeing the Lord would change Moses. And Paul says that every new covenant believer, every Christian through the work of the Holy Spirit continuously beholds the glory of the Lord and is continuously transformed. Paul's point is that his new covenant ministry mediates the spirit whose function is to transform the lives of believers progressively into the image of Christ because it's in Christ that the glory is fully revealed and that's where we are headed. That's, That's our goal and the spirit is transforming us one degree of glory into the next until we arrive. The remarkable reality of the new covenant believer is that every believer is able to behold the glory of the Lord face to face. We don't fear judgment. Every single person who turns to the Lord is able to approach him, not with fear and trembling, not with boundaries and thunder and lightning, but we are able to approach with boldness and confidence. Not because we are acceptable, but because Christ has dealt with the consequences. He has paid the penalty. We don't fear judgment or wrath. And we are united to Christ by his spirit. And the process, notice there's a process here. Paul says that we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. The result being we're transformed into the same image from one degree to another. It's a process. And it's not just Moses, it's all of us. And beholding that glory, we're all transformed. One comment here notes, we can never encounter God and remain unchanged. And notice the passive nature of this transformation. We are transformed. We don't transform ourselves. We are transformed. This is the ministry of the Spirit. It's something the Lord must do, which is at the end of the verse, Paul makes clear, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who does this. Human transformation can only be done by the Spirit. This transformation, which is what we're gonna look at in the, in, in the coming weeks, next week at least, Lord willing, takes place progressively. There's, there's, there's growth, there's process. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not like you become a Christian and you're transformed instantly. It's a process, a lifelong process. And while that can be discouraging at times, the good news is that we have the spirit who will ensure that it happens. He has been given to us to mediate the presence of the Lord and to ensure that we are transformed. And so Lord willing, in the, in the next week, at least next week, maybe two more weeks, we will look at this process of how the spirit transforms us Before we close, let me just make two points of application. First to the non-Christian. If you're here, you're not a Christian. You're you're not believing in Jesus. Your your faith is not confidently in Christ as your substitute, as the one who was crucified for you and raised again to give you new life. A failure for you to turn to Christ is evidence of your hardness of heart. So let me just say, Christ is the glory of God manifest. And until you turn to him, your heart is hardened. And your hard heart is 
gives evidence or, or a failure to turn to Christ, your, your relationship with Christ evidences your hard-heartedness. Friend, you should hear me tell you very explicitly that Christ died to offer free forgiveness of sins to sinners like you and sinners like me. Christ was raised from the dead to give us new life who were dead in sins and trespasses. Jesus Christ has opened the way to God for you and for me. And your response and my response must be to turn to him, to turn to Christ and to trust him, to put your faith in him. This is the gospel. This is the glory of God made manifest. Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, raised, and exalted. This is the glory of God. And you're, you turn to this Christ and you get God. And that's the only way you get God. And so behold, friend, behold the glory of the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ. Behold the glorious gospel of Christ. Repent and believe in Christ. There's a solution for your hard heart and it is not self-effort. It is surrender and trust in Christ. And then for those that are Christian, here's an application. Let us give thanks for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let us rejoice in the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. God by his providence has caused us to be born now post-resurrection and ascension and post-Pentecost. Let us give thanks for that. Let us recognize the process which every Christian is necessarily part of. If you're a Christian, you're on the road towards holiness. We're all on the road. We're at different parts of the road, but we're all moving in the same direction, on the same road, and that is towards Christ-likeness. We're gonna talk more about that next week, but we ought to at least recognize that conversion to Christ, that, that being born again is validated or evidenced by gradual change, by gradual transformation. Right? To be saved, to be born again, is evidenced and validated by progressive growth. This change is a moral, actual, observable change. Christians ought to be good moral people. We ought to, we ought to be growing in Christ-likeness outwardly, but also attitudes, thoughts, minds, all of these. Christians are always growing and Christians are always in need of growth. And if you think you don't need to grow, that's evidence that you don't get it. You need to grow. I don't care who the oldest Christian here is. You still have a long way to go. But that's okay. Because I do too. And so does everyone else on this road. It's okay because the good news is the spirit has been given to us. We are members of a new covenant and we're not left alone in this process. We have the spirit of God himself. And by the power of the spirit, we are experiencing in a progressive sense more and more of the freedom to obey God. As a result, we're being changed into God's own image by becoming obedient to his will. This moral transformation marks the decisive difference between the ministries of the old and the new covenants. Thank God for the new covenant that has been sealed with the blood of Christ. Let me pray for us as we close.